this whole controversy problem hysteria around civics education feels to me like it was a group of people sitting around the aspen institute saying why are we polarized be like oh let's find a solution Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, some exciting announcements today from Lost Debate. We have a newsletter, an education newsletter coming out today. It's called Imbroglio. Uh, that's I-M-B-R-O-G-L-I-O. I think I spelled that correctly. And it's all about education. And uh, in this first piece that we we put out today, I talk about a sort of future-focused vision for what a high school should look like today if I were starting a high school. So folks could check that out and subscribe for free. We also have our first episode of Hardest Step coming out tomorrow. Uh, this was the show that we put into our feed last week. We played a trailer. It's all about second chances, and our first season is all about people coming out of the prison system who are basically asking for society's forgiveness and trying to start out on the right foot. Uh, and then we have the trailer for a new show called Sweat the Technique, which is a, a show from educators who've been you know, on the front lines of helping people outside of the K-12 education system, whether it's sports teams or people learning hobbies or becoming better parents. So all about how we apply the lessons learned from the K-12 system outside of the education system. So uh, you could subscribe to that wherever you get your podcast. It's called uh, Sweat the Technique. And I think that's all our regular updates, Ricky. One uh, correction from last episode, we talked about this populist data uh, at the end of last show uh, where parents and other Americans were asked, like, what do they want out of their schools? And uh, we were confusing two sets of data there. The, the survey asked parents and it asked the general population. And, and in certain cases, I use the word parents when we were talking about the general population. The correlations are largely similar, but you know the rankings are slightly different for parents and the general population. In certain cases, they're, they're very different. So uh, we'll link to that study so you could check it out yourselves, but just wanted to make sure anybody doesn't rely upon the strict ranking that I talked about there. Well, okay, I'll take a deep breath. Uh, we have a few exciting stories today, but we have a third host joining us today, David Dayan is the executive editor of The American Prospect. He's the author of Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power and The Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. And he's won a bunch of different awards for his reporting, and he has expertise on some of the subjects that we're talking about today. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we have a just a wide breadth of stories today. We're going to talk about whether we have a crisis in civics education. We'll discuss a growing call to teach our students to be better citizens. Then we'll discuss the epidemic of fake reviews. The tech giants have convened a summit to combat this scourge. Will they succeed? But first, the DOJ is suing Google over its dominance in digital advertising. An antitrust lawsuit against Google alleging uh, uncompetitive practices claiming that Google abuses its dominance in online advertising. For 15 years, Google has engaged in exclusionary conduct to severely weaken, if not destroy, competition in the ad tech industry. The only way the Department of Justice could possibly win this case is to completely ignore reality. The Biden administration's biggest antitrust move against big tech yet. 
the DOJ is suing Google for a second time, this time um, on the basis that they're monopolizing digital advertising based on violations of Section 1 and 2 of the Sherman Act. And Google is obviously planning to fight the lawsuit. But just to set the scene with a quote from the case, this is what um, the allegations are against the company. Quote, Google now controls the digital tool that nearly every major website publisher uses to sell ads on their website. It controls the dominant advertiser tool that helps millions of large and small advertisers by ad, ad inventory, and it controls the largest advertising exchange, a technology that runs real-time auctions to match buyers and sellers of online advertising. So essentially, the allegation here is that from top to bottom, if you're selling an ad online or if you want to reach potential consumers, that you have to go through Google, and that is monopolistic. Well, David, you've written so much about this subject. What's your sense of the DOJ's case? Like, Do you think they're likely to succeed? I think it's a solid case. Um, you know, there certainly have been, uh, with this new regime, you have Jonathan Cantor at DOJ, you have uh, Lena Khan at the FTC. There certainly have been some cases that have been filed by uh, either of these two that have pushed the envelope and tried novel strategies uh, to try to deal with monopolization, try to promote competition. Uh, the, the, the Facebook case, for example, that the FTC put together was trying to promote incipient competition. In, in other words, uh, this is, uh, Facebook's attempted acquisition of, of, uh, a company that is a virtual reality company and, uh, called Within. And uh, th this isn't a very mature market, but the, the claim in the FTC case is that someday this will be a large market and, and, and Facebook is trying to strangle it right now and, and dominate it up front. That's pretty novel. What we see in the DOJ case is DOJ is saying that Google already controls uh, both sides of this transaction to a large degree and therefore can uh, use that uh, to, uh, you know, it's, it's information advantage to monopolize uh, this, this market in digital ads, uh, even if it's not a Google ad. And so uh, I, I think that's a much stronger ground to, to, to launch from, and uh, we'll see what happens and who they draw in uh, as far as a judge and whether they agree. This is unique, David, in that they, they control both sides of the transaction, the buy side, the sell side, and mm -hmm. the exchange itself. So almost like three yeah. sides of the transaction. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, you've written about this, but for people who don't follow antitrust law, which I would say is probably most people, uh, what has happened, uh, you know, in our court system and within the executive branch over the past few decades to change the way that we're even, you know, our government even looks at antitrust? Because it's not just mm -hmm. about how much market share you have, right? Sure. You know, it has to do with like this sort of consumer welfare standard, right? Well, at this point it does, yes. Uh, although that that's subject to change. So uh, we base our antitrust law on a, a bunch of statutes that date all the way back to 1890. That's when the Sherman Act was passed and the Clayton Act was 1914. Uh, and uh, those laws are actually pretty clear. They, they, they ban monopolization, they ban the attempt to monopolize, uh, and, and they, they look to protect competition, not necessarily competitors, but competition. And uh, that's the way that it was uh, used, uh, that those laws were, were adjudicated for 
you know, about 70, 80 years. And then in the 19, late 1970s, Robert Bork, who was uh, a professor at Yale and, and a law professor, uh, he was a attempted Supreme Court candidate who failed uh, in, a, in a resounding vote. Uh, but he probably contributed more as just a law professor to the workings of the law than anything he would have done as a Supreme Court justice because he completely changed the notion of antitrust. Uh, to this consumer welfare standard, which you referred to, which uh, kind of means that as long as a merger will be beneficial for consumers under a, a, a definition that usually is uh, put together by the companies themselves, uh, then it can go ahead and go forward. As long as it's more efficient, uh, then, then it's okay. You know, the corollary to that is that Bork said that any merger is, uh, by its definition, efficient. So it's a very circular logic that's, uh, <laughs> that he put together. Uh, however, this captured, uh, sort of the dominant thinking around antitrust, uh, you know, since the change in the merger guidelines in 1982 under the Reagan administration and through a series of court cases that have narrowed the ability for the government to challenge uh, these kinds of, of mergers and acquisitions uh, and and to challenge uh, whether a company is, is monopolistic in its practices. Uh, so we have seen in those 40 years uh, a, a real flourishing of uh, concentration throughout many, many sectors of the economy. And the group that uh, came forward with the Biden administration just over the last couple of years uh, has, has, they represent sort of a new school of thought around uh, antitrust and monopolies that it is not just about consumer welfare, that there are other harms to, from monopolization, whether it's harms to innovation, harms to uh, uh, small business, harms to democracy, harms to the liberty of workers. Uh, those things are the kinds of things that Khan and Cantor at the FTC and DOJ Antitrust really want to, uh, to, to make part of the whole of antitrust law. And this case is uh, an example of that, actually trying in, in a, a monopolization case where the remedy would be to break up pieces of this company. Uh, that's kind of the first time that we've seen that since the Microsoft case in the late 1990s, uh, at least for a major company. And uh, so this is a, this would set a, a, an enormous precedent and uh, it's, it, it's showing this new way of thinking around antitrust that is now uh, predominant at least within DOJ antitrust and, and, and the FTC. Well, one thing that I think the DOJ is um, going to use to shore up their case here is communications internally based up between Google employees that included some pretty damning quotes among them, um, an employee saying that they're, quote, an authoritarian intermediary. They admitted to, quote, overcharging advertisers. Um, another one here, our goal should be all or nothing. Use Google's ad exchange or you don't get access to advertiser demands and executives that they wanted to, quote, dry out rivals and another advertising executive said or actually at, wondered aloud, is there a deeper issue with us owning the platform, the exchange, and the huge network? The analogy would be if Goldman or Citibank owned the New York Stock Exchange. So listening to that, I think um, obviously paints Google in a pretty negative light here. But David, what's your sense on how um, how Google will fight this this suit? 
Can you speak to whether what Ricky just said to my ears sounds like this case could meet the consumer welfare standard, right? Like if Google is overcharging or using their dominance well, to drive up prices to the advertisers, wouldn't that meet the consumer welfare standard that, also? I mean, it's a, a question of your definition of a consumer. Like is the consumer day-to-day -day Americans or is it corporations that are buying ad space? I think that that's a definitional question here. Right. And that's going to be, I think, part of, of, of the case itself is uh, Google, uh, as it has said in the past, uh, that uh, consumers don't pay for its product. And uh, if you're looking at the end user consumer, the person who uses Google, uh, they benefit from a vibrant ad market. This is this is Google talking. It's not me talking. Uh, they benefit from a vibrant ad market. Uh, they are able to gain all this knowledge that they use through search and uh, hear about uh, the various products that Google has. And, uh, you know, they they uh, uh, are afforded this privilege in a way that uh, certainly doesn't violate any kind of harms uh, to consumers. Uh, if you see the consumer, of course, as advertisers and publishers, uh, then you, you look at this in a very, very different way. Uh, so, so that's going to be one of the, the factors of the case. Uh, Google is probably going to say that they, they do not control the advertising market. And it's kind of a, a again, a definitional thing. They will say that, look, uh, Google and Facebook now are less than 50% of overall, uh, uh, spending on ads. Uh, Amazon has, has moved up in that, uh, in that, that roster, uh, quite a bit. Uh, however, th this is not necessarily about, uh, the ad market as in Google makes X amount of money on Google ads and Facebook makes X amount of money and Amazon makes X amount of money. It's, it's more about the back end and these auctions that take place that nobody knows about. But every time an advertiser tries to buy a programmatic ad, there's uh, sort of this mass algorithmic back end uh, auction that takes place uh, to, to place those ads. And Google dominates uh, the, the, the technology behind uh, those 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 transactions that go on, as we said, uh, you know, the buy side and the sell side, as well as the exchange. So um, uh, I, I think that that we're going to see a lot of definitional uh, things. It's going to be a very uh, esoteric kind of trial, as most of these antitrust trials are, um, where people are trying to figure out this precise definition of a market and economists are brought in to go onto the stand. And uh, I, I think if you step back and you just look at the fact that uh, if you are an advertiser uh, and you want to sell an ad or if you're a publisher and you want to place an ad on your site, you're you're as uh, Josh Marshall of Talking Points Memo once said, you're a surf on Google's farm. You, you, you are the you are beholden to them. And uh, that and Google has used that to their advantage. Well, let's play a clip. So this guy named David Cohen, who's the CEO of the Interactive Advertising Bureau, went on TV and essentially didn't just defend Google, but situated them in the larger context of market share across a bunch of different industries. You lead an industry association for advertising. Does Google dominate the market for advertising technology? There was a report that recently came out, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal about a month ago, uh, that reported that between Google and uh, Meta, 
they represent less than 50% of the ad-supported ecosystem in the U.S. Uh, that is a change. That is a decrease over time. Uh, are there players that have significant influence and significant share? Yes. In lots of cases in the industry, whether you talk about detergent, chocolate, autos, there are lots of examples of leading players that have significant market share. I do not think the ad-supported ecosystem is any different than other categories. What I find interesting about this is the politics of this on the right, because traditionally the right has been skeptical of using antitrust enforcement against major companies in these mm -hmm. cases. But you have this new strain of populist politician like the Josh Hollies of the world who seem to want a robust enforcement of the antitrust laws, at least as it relates to big tech. But I think what David is saying here, David Cohen, is yeah. there's a lot of consolidation. We've talked about on this podcast, for instance, like the meatpacking industry. A question I have is about the politics. Like, are we just talking about tech or are a lot of these figures who, in some cases, are states, attorney generals and governors filing suits against Google and joining this lawsuit? Rare moment of bipartisanship. Are they also going to come for other industries that have similar consolidation? Well, it's a good question. It's actually the larger question is whether they're even going to come for tech. I, I just do want to say uh, that that in that in that clip, uh, I, I think David Cohen is is is, is it, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I would lean towards the former, confusing the digital <laughs> ad market with advertising tech, and and ad tech is really what this case is about. Um, as far as you know, the Republican so-called realignment. Uh, just last week, we saw that uh, Ken Buck, who uh, would have been the chair of the House Antitrust Subcommittee under the new GOP majority, uh, who has recently put out a book uh, that was very critical of big tech, who was a willing uh, participant in uh, the large House Antitrust Subcommittee uh, report that really went after big tech. He was taken off that committee by Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan and uh, a, a sort of stock and trade libertarian uh, was put in his place and will now head that subcommittee. I do not believe that Republicans have the courage of their convictions or, or the courage of their claims when it comes to actually taking on these issues. Uh, even even in the narrow sense of big tech, which where it seems they want to sort of work the refs so that they uh, get a large space uh, to, to make their 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 arguments uh, on social media, which seems to be what they're more concerned about rather than, uh, you know, harms uh, from monopolization uh, of, of various actors uh, who, who interface with big tech. So let's say that this case succeeds and Google does their advertising business does get broken up. This is something that as someone who's a little more skeptical of antitrust in general, I consistently struggle with is just what happens next and what does that actually look like with an industry like this? Mm -hmm. um, I think the question was posed pretty well by Miles Krupa of the Wall Street Journal who said, it's like they've melted down a bunch of different ice cream flavors and combined them into one and refrozen it. Now it's like, how do you get the strawberry out of the vanilla? Um, and so my question to you, David, is like, what, what would a world look like where this sort of business is broken up? I think that's a common claim that's made that, oh, now there's all this complexity that has been put uh, now that uh, we have these acquisitions. 
I, I don't actually buy it. I think there is an easy way to, to you know, cleave off ad, the ad tech business away from, uh, uh, you know, whether it's the buy side and the sell side or the exchange and separate that. Uh, what we have to understand is that this growth and dominance from Google largely came through acquisition. The purchase of DoubleClick, which uh, was a separate business uh, that engaged in advertising technology, uh, was the big one, but there were several others along the way. And, uh, you know, Google engaged in a strategy that's fairly common in Silicon Valley and, and in other businesses, uh, which is to grow through acquisition. And so unwinding those acquisitions uh, I, I think it's not as as difficult a process as as what that claim is made. I mean, Google is a website that engages in uh, you know it's a search engine. Uh, the idea that it, it's in, in inexorably has to also have an ad tech uh, stack alongside that, and it, it can never be separated. I I just don't buy that. So when we're talking about what happens next, also. Obviously, breaking them up is not the only option, right? So, mm -hmm. Deirdre Bosa went on, uh, was on CNBC, basically talking, looking to Europe and saying, like, look, even the more aggressive countries haven't been able to break up these companies. And then Noah Smith and his Substack, No Opinion, essentially says, like, hey, even if we agree that this is a monopoly, we may not want to break it up. And he cites national security concerns, and I really want to get your opinion about this because he basically talks about the the rise of AI. And China, you know, the potential for China to dominate AI and that maybe we want to, you know, instead of breaking up Google, basically, this is my words, not his, give them a slap on the wrist, you know, fines and have them, you know, tell them not to do this anymore. <laughs> that seems, seems like it'll work. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to, he, he makes this analogy that I'm not familiar enough about what happened, which is he, he talks about shuttering Bell Labs in the early 80s and how that held back American telecoms and allowed um, Huawei to surpass them. I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure like if that claim is correct or not and why we even shut down Bell Labs or wh whether it was shut down. Bell Labs is a paradigmatic example of the opposite of what Noah is talking about. I mean, uh, Bell Labs shut itself down in the 80s, but prior to that, uh, there was a Justice Department case that led to a consent decree forcing Bell Labs to license the products that it helped invent. And that created the electronic system in the United States. I mean, that created this, this very vibrant ecosystem. Uh, so if anything, uh, Google, uh, ju the Justice Department is following the first example here and uh, moving to create a new market that actually has some competition in it. Now, uh, as far as what uh, it, it will result from this case. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, we could see uh, the uh, breakup, uh, the, the, the severing of certain business lines uh, away from Google. Um, this idea that, that China, this is a familiar kind of big tech claim, this national champions claim that if we, if we don't have these giant leviathans in Silicon Valley, then China is going to eat our lunch. Uh, it, it's, it's a ridiculous claim. Mm -hmm. um, but the other part of this, and this was said a lot during the Microsoft trial as well, uh, Gary Reback, who was one of the uh, lead lawyers uh, fighting uh, uh, against Microsoft in that case, uh, he, he has a famous quote where he says, the trial is the remedy. Uh, and what he means mm -hmm. by that is that 
uh, just by virtue of uh, going after Google, and Google is facing you know several antitrust cases on a number of fronts, uh, they're going to be uh, less likely to uh, be extremely aggressive in trying to dominate certain markets in the future. What we saw with Microsoft is that they were in a browser case. That, that's what the Microsoft case was about, bundling uh, computers with the Internet Explorer browser and using their dominance to block Netscape from flourishing, essentially. Uh, because they were under this kind of pressure, Microsoft did not uh, use that those same kind of tactics on the Internet. Uh, they just, you know, thought as long as we control the browser, we're good. And uh, that created this this massive amount, probably created the the circumstances which built Google, uh, in addition to a number of other companies on the Internet. And uh, so the trial is the remedy, I think, is a good way to look at this. Like, you know, using your aggressiveness to try to block uh, uh, big tech's continued uh, attempts to dominate certain markets uh, is, is in some ways an end in itself. Well, I think this is um, certainly a case that we will revisit down the line as it continues. And anybody who's interested in learning more about it, I'd strongly recommend reading some of David's reporting. We'll put that in the show notes. All right. Well, let's talk about civics and civics education. Richard Haas had a piece in The Atlantic uh, that was called Why We Need Civics. And he points to a couple of stats that on the face of them seem pretty startling. Only eight states in the District of Columbia require a full year of high school civics education. Uh, one state, which is why requires a year and a half. 31 require half a year and 10 require little or none at the college level. The data isn't great either. And Haas says, quote, the most urgent threat to American security and stability stems not from abroad, but from within, from political divisions that jeopardize the future of American democracy and even the United States itself, end quote. So he is part of a, I would say, pretty uh, large and growing cadre of influential people, including U.S. senators who are saying, hey, we need to invest more in civics education. Do we think he's right? I mean, I'll say certainly I think yes, as somebody who not so long ago was in high school. Um, it's definitely taken a backseat in recent years. Math reading college prep has kind of superseded what we think is important. And I, I mean, I would say even personally, anecdotally, I learned absolutely nothing at all whatsoever about what it means to be an American citizen. I, I at the at best, I was taught to basically recite back what the First Amendment is and protects and not necessarily why it's important. So I would say, like, honestly, I do think my generation has drifted so far away from understanding like the core of what it means to be an American citizen that um, even though I don't love the idea of like government mandated um, civics education in the public school system, I don't really see a way around it. Um, there was a quote from Haas's piece that really resonated with me. He said, no group of people should assume that this that its identity will automatically be inherited by the next generation for people to understand and appreciate its collective identity is a matter of teaching, not biology. And I think that's a fact. I mean, I, I think there are sort of two separate issues here. Uh, the, 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 the first is about 
sort of the education system itself. And certainly for me, it's been a while since uh, I've uh, been in the high school classroom. Um, and I certainly valued at that time uh, uh, the education I got in things like social studies and history and, and, and things of that nature. And I, I think it is important to sort of a balanced curriculum. However, of course, what we're seeing right now is if you do try to teach uh, history or, or, you know, any, any, anything that deviates from uh, sort of American manifest destiny and tries to present it with any kind of flaws, you get this huge backlash which we've seen over uh, what has been termed uh, kind of uh, disingenuously critical race theory. Um, uh, so if you do try to you know, impose this uh, concept of uh, civics education on the public, invariably you're going to get uh, people from one side or the other who are saying you're you're trying to indoctrinate my child into the forces of liberalism or conservatism or what have you. And I, I think I think you're asking for, uh, you know, it's not going to be this sort of easy, nonpartisan way of, of teaching people in that fashion. So that's the one way to look at it is about the curriculum itself. And I, I, I do think there are good questions to be asked there. The second way is is to say, okay, are people is 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 the lack of civics education what is to blame for what is claimed to be a disengagement of the public on political matters? And on that point, I I actually just don't agree that that that's the case. I, I don't necessarily agree that there's been disengagement. Uh, the Trump years have created a massive amount of engagement in politics. Uh, voting participation is way up. Uh, even beyond that, engagement in terms of uh, civic participation, protest, uh, 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 you know, speaking out at, uh, uh, you know, civic uh, meetings, things like town halls. Uh, all that is up in, in the last several years. Uh, maybe there's been a downtick since uh, the Biden administration came into play. But uh, I, I don't necessarily see that. And I, and I also think that it's, it's, it's sort of a way to get uh, elites off the hook for um, the, the, the way in which their uh, uh, preferred practices of how they conduct politics has fallen down. I mean, right. the, the reason that we see uh, a lot of these problems with uh, what is claimed to be division, which I don't know how you get rid of that, people people disagree, um, is is because of failures of elites uh, to you know provide accountability uh, to uh, uh, prevent collapse uh, in in various uh, parts of uh, whether it's the economy or or other parts of the society. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that that taking a seventh grade class is necessarily going to change that. Right. Well, I, it feels to me, David, I agree with so much so much of what you said. If this whole controversy problem hysteria around civics education feels to me like it was a group of people sitting around the Aspen Institute saying, why are we polarized? And be like, oh, let's find a solution. And they make a, a few claims to me that seems suspect. Like you read these pieces and one is, you know, we don't have a national curriculum standards for, for civics. Well, we don't have national curriculum standards for anything. So that's like not specific to And to when we try civics. to, there are huge fights around it, right? Yeah. I mean. In part, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah we want to go mean, there, right? Also, Over the there's also court. a world where you can advocate for civics education on a localized state-by-state -state basis, as is our precedent and like you can you you don't have to necessarily believe that you need a federal mandate or federal standards nor do i think that we should have one personally well, let's frankly. talk about those local standards right so they say 
they talk about, oh, we don't have civics education at the local level, but they don't count for social studies and history standards. Most states range between three to four social studies credits to meet the graduation requirement for high school. And one credit is a year of study. The average is 3.2 credits to graduate from high school. And so if you read your state standards, like I just pulled up the New York standards, for example, nearly everything that's being asked for is in the standards. So like we're talking about, oh, new standards for civics, but a lot of this is already baked in. And then they also cite this data to say, you know, the Annenberg talks about, for instance, Annenberg Civics Knowledge Survey from 2022 talks about less than half of U.S. adults could name all three branches of government down from 56% in 2021, but it was up from 33% in 2006. So to David's point, actually, in certain cases, depending on how you read the data, people are becoming more knowledgeable. And that comes as, you know, as, as he talked about, turnout is up. Uh, but also if you compare that to other subjects, like we talked about this Brian Kaplan piece from the New York Times a few months ago, where he talked about how adults don't know, like huge swaths of adults, I think something like half, don't know that an electron is smaller than an atom or whether, you know, how antibiotics work, right? So you can go through every subject and say, we've got an education crisis and not a civics crisis. And that's kind of where I come yeah, down on this. Yeah, but I don't really think that you need to know that an electron is smaller than an atom in order to like vote in a democracy. I think it, there's there's different stakes here um, in terms of just being a citizen. Like, I don't, I don't think it's right to just equate any field. And I do think that this is probably one of the most fundamentally important things for us to inculcate. I also don't think doing a year of civics is going to be a fix-all. I don't think it ever was a fix-all. Like through the 1960s, that was pretty much our standard and we didn't have any sort of perfect gold standard of, of being good, responsible citizens. But at the very least, I think if we're going to have kids in school five days a week, nine months a year, we should be teaching them what it means to be an American citizen, what are their branches of government are, what rights but they have do. and why that's important. And I don't I don't think there's any reason not to have a specific civics class beyond social studies and history. Like I I can just say from my own personal experience, I certainly wasn't I had no idea how to register to vote. I had no idea like even that you do that when you, when you get your driver's license. Like there's just very fundamental things or even like how do you pay taxes? I still haven't really figured that one out. Like there's <laughs> there are important things it, about April's like what coming, Ricky, it means so to be a, a citizen. Oh, trust me, I know. <laughs> Um, the, the, the one thing I would add is that, uh, if it seems to me that, uh, if the government delivers for people, then, then people have a better stake in, uh, uh, understanding it, it's, it's inner workings. If, if people feel like, uh, what is delivered by the government isn't, isn't working for them, then they're not going to be as engaged. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, uh, it goes back to our other discussion. So, so one of the things that the Federal Trade Commission has done recently is it uh, proposed a rule to ban what are called non-compete agreements. And these are agreements that you sign uh, when you sign your employment contract that say you can't work for another company in the same field. Uh, and these yeah, have, we just did a big uh, segment, by the way, David, on this yeah. a couple okay. of weeks ago. So uh, I won't I won't belabor the point. But what I will say is that uh, like most rules, the non-competes has a uh, ban. The proposed ban has a public comment period where anyone can so sign on to a website and uh, give their comments on why they think this is a good idea, what what should be in the rule, et cetera. There are over 9,000 comments right now uh, at, at the uh, you know, regulations.gov for the FTC's non-compete rule in just a couple of weeks. And that comment period is ongoing. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, this is 
from people from all walks of life who have dealt with non-compete agreements in their own lives and are participating in a, in a very civic way uh, in uh, the, the forming and shaping of this rule. And, and by law, uh, uh, agencies have to read all of those comments and incorporate them into their final rule. So uh, I, I do think that if, if, if government itself is seen as vibrant and engaged, uh, and, and trying to solve problems that uh, the public will follow. Right. And there's this this Civic Secures Democracy Act, which is a bipartisan act. Chris Coons and John Cornyn support it along with these nonprofit organizations. And it would offer uh, a roadmap and a model and a billion dollar investment across K-12. And I'm like, all right, this sounds great. But why this? Why the federal government? Like, yeah, this, this seems that. to be, you know, maybe they should stop. They should pass a law to ban political gerrymandering. Maybe that would make people more interested. Like if the politicians weren't picking the voters and the voters are picking the politicians, maybe the voters would care more. Or maybe if we reformed our campaign finance system so that, you know, the flow of money mattered less than the actual, you know, the will of the voters. Right. And we were manipulating the public less with stupid ads every time that an election comes around. Uh, maybe that would help. Uh, but also, like, maybe we have too many, you know, this is maybe a controversial point, but often this data compares us to other countries. And one thing that the U.S. is uniquely bad at is complexity within our political system. If you live in New York, you go to the ballot box multiple times a year. Sometimes they design it to keep turnout low, which has been a historic problem in New York. And uh, you've got to vote for public advocate, borough president, state assembly member, state senator, city council member, judges, the governor, lieutenant governor, members of Congress, Senate, president. You can go on and down the list, district attorney. And at a certain point, we're asking Americans to keep track of all these people. If you live in the UK, it's one system. Now, you sometimes will vote for multiple people. But I think our system now, I don't think we're going to reform the Constitution, but we do have certain places like New York that seem very trigger happy to be like, let's add a public advocate. Let's add a, you know, a, a new elected county, you know, judge seat or, you know, let's instill more, you know, budget power within a borough president, you know, a toothless office. And now I got to worry about what that person is doing versus what this other person is doing. And they pass the buck every time they're asked why they don't deliver I mean, doesn't the case that our de our democracy is complex and has a lot of moving parts, that kind of makes the case for civics education and teaching people about how all those parts work and fit together and why it's important to vote? Like, I, to me, I hear what you're saying and I'm like, hmm, that sounds like a reason why we should have a class discussing like what all these different moving parts are and why we have them and get a little more engagement there. Uh, Robbie and Ricky, I, I invite you to California, where in addition to voting on all of those uh, various officers and representatives, we also vote on the laws. We, we have multiple uh, in our direct yeah. democracy oh experiment. Yeah. Uh, you know, the ballot in, in even numbered years has 10, 12, 14, 16, 20 initiatives that you have to vote for uh, and, and, you know, bone up on and learn. Uh, sometimes it's uh, referendums on laws that have already been passed. And, an example is that just this week uh, uh, already has qualified for the ballot in 2024 
uh, a referendum on a law that our elected representatives in California passed uh, to uh, create a, a wage board for fast food restaurants to, to set wages in that industry. And, and the, uh, you know, the fast food companies spent millions of dollars, got these petition signatures in many ways, lying, saying that they were, uh, uh, you know, signing petitions for uh, increases in the minimum wage uh, that has been documented. And we have video of that. Um, uh, and now we're going to, despite the fact that we learned up, we voted for our representative, those representatives decided to pass a law. Uh, now we have to vote on the law because the special interests who didn't weren't able to, you know, block it in the legislature are getting another bite of the apple by running millions and millions of dollars worth of ads at the public. And so at some level, there is, uh, uh, you know, all the civics education in the world isn't going to change that system and, and make that system more effective. Uh, at, at some point, you have to the, the problem is not with the education. The problem is with the, the, the system and the way it's set up. Well, I, I think also one part of this whole piece that I do agree with is let's focus not on just the knowledge that kids need, right? And I think we should teach the knowledge, but as so many studies show, by the time they become adults, they forget so much about what they learn in school from a fact basis. But if you can teach them how to think right. and how to debate, how to disagree, that's probably more value and not just teach them how, but give them practice disagreeing. Give them practice looking at primary sources. Think, give them practice thinking statistically and looking for fallacies, right? These are things that I think could really benefit kids. And, you know, I talked earlier about this uh, piece in Imbroglio, the newsletter we have. I have a whole section about, like, critical thinking. This is where I agree with people. We should spend more time teaching kids to think critically and less time debating exactly what the content should be. Should it be 1776? Should it be 1619? Show them both. Have them debate it and have them look at the primary source material themselves. Kids are smart enough to figure it out. And if you give them an opportunity to debate instead of blanketly banning certain things, which we've talked about so many times, you know, I think the kids will actually have really good discussions. I, I don't even think that. I was a school principal. I saw it myself in the precursors. Well, cities. and of course, kids are smart. They like course, to debate. Of course, so, Ravi. I mean, one of the one of the issues in education is this idea of uh, you know a, a lot of testing, teaching to the test, uh, creating uh, a base set of skills that that don't involve critical thinking and involves you know filling bubbles and uh, on, onto a, a, a scantron sheet. Uh, this is this is I think a larger problem in education, which is what is the purpose of it? Is it to create good workers that uh, you know go to their job and 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 know uh, a, a very narrow set of skills, or is it about creating people who think more critically? And I think I think that is uh, a, a bigger issue that you know uh, civics is maybe part of, but I I, I I lean more towards what you're thinking there. Yeah, and I think you know we. We actually had a segment on another one of our shows called the Citizen Steward Podcast, all about this testing debate. So I'll direct people to that because that actually comes out tonight too. I'm I'm generally more on the protesting side, but you and I would agree on the bubbling stuff in. Like I I think the Common Core, for example, is widely misunderstood. I think a lot of people looked at that and said, "All right, like this is just like you know the you know asking kids to you know become robots and do more of the same." But actually, those tests ask kids to do more writing, more critical thinking. The math, if you compare the math in the Common Core exams to the math that kids were asked to do before, it involves way more conceptual understanding of math, deeper understanding. I don't think it was completely handled correctly, but 
you know, that was a coalition, a reflection of our, like that was a step in the direction of what we're talking about in many ways, but a co like the polarization stopped it, you know, like the very polarization we're talking about solving stopped that from being implemented where there was a coalition of the extreme right and left who, you know, one side thought it was an Obama conspiracy. The other side didn't like the fact that Arnie Duncan was telling them that their kids uh, weren't as smart as they thought they were. And that was enough to stop it in a lot of states, including Tennessee, where I was, where, you know, some weird version of it wound up emerging, but they got rid of the way it was intended to be implemented in the beginning and resulted in a lot of chaos on the ground. Let's move on to fake reviews. This is Ricky, a 180, not a 90 degree turn, I would say. <laughs> you have to uh, fix that one last time. Ricky... I was reading this and wondering, where are our fake reviews? I want more fake reviews of lost debate out there on the internet. How do we well, do Well, I this? would like some more real reviews. Um, yeah. Okay, listeners, good plug. Please, good plug. please give us a real review here, not a fake one. Um, but yeah, this New York Times report is really interesting. It um, discusses this shadowy summit in San Francisco where executives were talking about fake reviews. Um, representatives from Google, Yelp, Trustpilot, TripAdvisor, uh, reportedly the FTC sent a representative as well. And this doesn't really seem like it should be a very pressing issue. But when you actually zoom out and think about it, 77% of US consumers always are regularly read reviews. They're making consumption and spending decisions on the basis of them. And yet only 10% of Americans actually review regularly themselves. And this is estimated to affect as much as $3.8 trillion of e-commerce revenue in 2020 alone. So this is shifting the, the modern economy and especially the internet economy or even brick and mortar retail restaurant um, consumerism in a way that I think a lot of people don't even realize just like how profound it is. Yeah, David, does this trip any of your antitrust uh, <laughs> concerns when you hear about all these tech companies coming together? Or are you like, hey, this is a real problem that they should be working together to solve? Well, interestingly, uh, I mean, I I'm not sure how interested uh, uh, companies are in solving this. Uh, my, my book, uh, Monopolize, actually has a chapter about Amazon, uh, where fake reviews are, are, are really a scourge for businesses. Now, what we know on Amazon is you have uh, this third-party marketplace where a million sellers come on and try to, to hawk their goods. And it's really a kind of digital wild west. Uh, the, the, the rules are, are incomplete and, and not really well-defined. And it provides lots of opportunities for companies to, uh, these third-party sellers, to essentially sabotage one another. And one of the ways they do that is through reviews. Uh, posting fake reviews on somebody else's site, uh, posting a lot of fake reviews for another company, and then appealing to Amazon that, hey, there are a bunch of fake reviews uh, on that company's site, uh, oh and God. getting that account taken down. I mean, there are all sorts of tactics. The Verge uh, had a really great story about this several years ago, and uh, I did my own uh, reporting uh, for my book chapter on this. Um, and uh, the, the problem there, the sort of overarching problem, is that Amazon didn't want to get involved. They, they, they didn't want to lay down specific standards. They didn't want to use technology to block fake reviews. I don't know even how you could do that. 
Um, and uh, they, they, they sort of allowed this digital Somalia to take place where these companies could just use whatever tactic possible to try to bounce their competitors off the website. And uh, it, it's, it's created this, this real dog-eat-dog -dog mentality. And you see this in other review sites, whether it's Yelp or TripAdvisor or these other ones using, you know, the fact that, that people do rely on this stuff uh, to try to create advantage for their company over a rival. Yeah, I wonder if this is going to lead to, a, especially in the age of AI, right, where you can generate these reviews faster than ever before. Yeah. If this is going to lead to more gated sites, like, for instance, if I'm going to travel, uh, maybe I'm more likely to look at the Condé Nast travel right up instead of TripAdvisor because I at least know who they are. I mean, it raises all sorts of other questions about whether Condé Nast is getting paid to show this hotel versus that hotel or whatever. But I think like maybe we take a step back to the days of old where you have a few trusted sources, Wirecutter in the New York Times, Condé Nast for fancy travelers. Like you start to go down the list and maybe there's, we, we take a step back from this crowdsourced reviewing and rating. Yeah, although I, I do think that there is positives to the crowdsource and just knowing what like day-to-day -day people think about products and things in a way that, and or even like nobody's going to, Condé Nast is not going to start reviewing Amazon products for you. Like you, you'd like to know from actual consumers what, what's up. And I think that's, I think that's fair. That's something that I think has a utility. I don't want to see this go away, but I did have an idea for an app that you could, roll out that I think would solve for some of these problems. Feel free to totally steal my idea. I think it's great. I would call it give and take. And you'd have to have your ID verified in the same way that like for a lot of social media apps now you you have to. And for every place that you look up to see the review of a coffee shop or whatever, you have to write a review for somewhere else that you've been. And there could be a cap at how many you can do per week, per month. And I think that like having a, a smaller, more community-based sort of outgrowth of these platforms could be a solution to that potentially. I mean, it wouldn't be a perfect fix, but better than what we have right now, which is any person could go on and review a million different places or write different iterations of the same review for the same place over and over if they chose to. Well, you make me wonder whether the, like Airbnb is a good example, right? Why can you trust Airbnb reviews? Because you can only write a review if you stayed at that place. Yeah. So you could start go you could start going one site at a time and think about how could you create that verification. So, you know, Uber is a good example. You can only do Uber review if you took a car. Amazon could easily do this and just say, "All right, yeah. if you've they ordered the They have the verified product, purchase thing on some reviews. I'm not sure why that wouldn't just be the entirety. That of, should just be I mean, all of them. yeah, that yeah. should be. Well, there, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of money in getting around this, right? I mean, there's 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 enormous amounts at stake, and therefore uh, uh, enormous amounts of resources thrown uh, at trying to game this system. Uh, the 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 problem, of course, is you know we all deal with a fire hose of information at all times, and we need somebody to appeal to to try to narrow it down a bit for us. Uh, we've had this since the beginning of time, really, and uh, uh, it it has you know, fed into this system of curation uh, that, uh, you know, is certainly imperfect. There are certainly smaller sites that are similar to what Ricky is talking about. I think about Goodreads, which actually is a division of Amazon, mm -hmm. uh, Letterboxd for movies. 
Um, Whoa, Goodreads uh, is owned by Amazon? I yeah. didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's everywhere if you look for it, Robbie. Um, so uh, anyway. I joked, I, I tweet like once a month, David, and I tweeted the other day that I, I have a special place in my heart for people who get feisty in the Goodreads reviews. I was reading it the other day and people go at it over. My dad's Amazon book reviews are literally the funniest thing that I've ever accidentally found. I have to pull some up while we're talking. I, I, I have to share some. It. They're so good. But this gets to what Ricky was saying. Like there is something beautiful about citizen reviews and it's better than you know if you've seen ratatouille it's better than the one critic who can make or break a restaurant right like that's too much power to put in anybody's hands this used to be true of movie reviews too people hate rotten tomatoes but honestly i trust rotten tomatoes than i do like the random movie critic so i don't know it's it's a tough question Oh, I'm trying to find. Oh, I found. I found Dick Schlott's Amazon reviews. They're really. Oh, good. read it first. Yeah, this read it was, first. This was when I was on our family Amazon account, and I accidentally discovered that he's like a real uh, verified purchase reviewer here, very frequently. Um, some one star reviews from him, just okay, comma, unfortunately, period. Two stars, not one of his best. Um, <laughs> here's here's a he long-winded seems like one. A bot. That seems like a bot. I know. <laughs> One star. Disap- well, an 85-year-old did, which is basically the same difference. One star. Disappointing Dick, I'm not exclamation making fun point. Of you, by the way, that's your daughter <laughs> making fun of you. Um, and at the end of this more long-winded one, he goes, "Sadly, I must give it one star, which I feel is one star too many." Oh my god. <laughs> Or this one, I give it one star because I do not know how to rate it less and still do the review. So you better <laughs> hope that he doesn't harsh. buy your book Savage. or mine in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, of course, the big problem with this is on the Internet. No one knows you're a dog. Right. I mean, you, you, there's there's no way for you to know whether or not Ricky's dad is a, a, a real human being or someone paid by, uh, you know, a, a rival company to to talk down those reviews. And, and you know, I mean, it, it, we have lived in this society without this. You know, we'd asked our friends and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have to continue to engage in a constant process of, of this discovery. I wonder if we can come like a company can emerge and, and David, you might be aware of what actual companies tried this. Cause I'm sure somebody's tried this where you can basically build your, your credibility, almost like credit, uh, through reviews. Like you, you provide IDs, you purchase the products and at a certain, they score you. Like you go on a website and there's like this interface is there almost like like um, Stripe and some of these payment interfaces is there. So when you try to do a review, you go through the system and it knows who you are and you've provided your ID, you've verified that you've purchased something if you're reviewing it, et cetera. And it can give you a score to your review and say, all right, this is a, a review that's going to bump to the top and count more because this is a person who's reviewed a, a, quite a few things and has never been flagged and is is who they say they are and has purchased the products and you know their you know random selection of their reviews through the sort of gpt zero tells us they're not ai i don't know if this is getting too complicated but given the stakes of these reviews maybe that's the way to go you know yeah i mean you know there are uh, certainly uh uh there have been ways to do this sort of with social media in the past. You know, I mean, there's the whole blue check kind of uh, controversy on Twitter. And, and now, of course, you can buy yeah, don't that. Don't ask Ricky about that. <laughs> okay. Uh, sensitive subject. Um, there used to be a site called Clout. 
which measured uh, uh, social media networks. And uh, if you had a higher clout score, you were allegedly uh, more trusted because more people uh, followed you or listened to you or, or paid attention to you. Um, so this has been tried a little bit, I think, in the past, uh, but it does seem uh, kind of mindlessly complicated. <laughs> it, 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 it does seem that, that uh, at, at some level, uh, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't seem like uh, there's a, a perfect fix for this just because of uh, the nature of anonymity in the Internet. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. This is really wonderful. And um, thank you so much for just adding so much to this discussion. Uh, is there anything you want to plug before we let you go? Well, sure. I'm, I'm the executive editor of the American Prospect. That's at prospect.org. Um, I'm Twitter at ddayen, D-D-A-Y-E-N. Uh, we have a new issue out at the Prospect about uh, implementing the Biden agenda, looking at the kind of behind the scenes of how, how laws turn into policy. And uh, we'll be rolling that out and uh, come by and check us out. And there you go, how a bill becomes a law. Classic civics education. Maybe we'll start handing that out in high schools. There you go. Get your get your civics at the prospect. All right. Well, thank you, David. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. All right, well, we had a voicemail on our hospice segment from last week. Let's play it. Hey, Robbie and Ricky, this is Kirk from Idaho. I believe I actually overlapped with Robbie in law school. Big fan of the show. It's become my go-to source for balanced, thoughtful discussion about current events, so great job. I was disappointed, though, in the hospice segment you did recently. I'm in the hospice industry, and I did not feel like it reflected the reality of what it's like out there, and it was very one-sided. I felt like you uncritically accepted everything in the ProPublica article in a way that you normally would not on other issues. If there had been a similar reported expose about charter schools or something based on one or two plaintiff cases that were dismissed by a bunch of different federal judges, you would have looked at that with a critical eye in a way that you didn't hear. Um, and I, do, I just, uh, what was described in that article just doesn't match my experience in the industry at all. I've never done something that felt better for society or more professionally fulfilling than helping people in their most vulnerable moments. And I think a lot of people in the hospice industry are pretty bummed out to be painted with such a broad brush when they're trying to do such a good thing that's good for patients in the right circumstances, a lot better than potentially being hooked up to machines in the hospital, if you noted, or in a nursing home, and also good for taxpayers since it's a fraction of the cost. Um, those sweeping claims about the industry being right with fraud I think they deserve some context, and um, that context is that fraud and abuse in our industry are defined so much more broadly and differently than they are in other industries. What in my past career as a tech uh, lawyer would have been called a, an oopsie or a typo in healthcare is called fraud or abuse. You've got a nurse at the end of an eight-hour shift who puts something incorrect in the iPad, the wrong doctor's name or the wrong date. That's called fraud or abuse, or if a uh, uh, you know, privately paid Medicare contractor comes along a year after a patient dies and disagrees with the doctor's determination that the patient was going to die within a certain time frame, which is a very difficult estimate to make. Uh, that's also called fraud. Also, I wanted to note that patients can freely elect and then unelect hospice, so they're not trapped in non-curative care. If they decide they want to get curative care, they can unelect hospice and go get that and then come back into hospice if they want. Anyway, just wanted to provide a few clarifications and kind of provide the other side. Thanks for all you're doing. Keep it up. Bye. Well, I want to thank this uh, listener for this voicemail. 
I think there are a couple of things here. I use the analogy to nursing homes where my mom works, and I talked about how like we have major problems with the way that we run nursing homes and treat the elderly in this country. And just like I don't think the problems with nursing homes means we should get rid of nursing homes or that like the entire industry of nursing homes should be painted with a brush as evil, I don't think the same is true of hospices necessarily. I do think that the flaws that ProPublica pointed out and the lawsuits that this listener points out that some of them were dismissed still raised really important questions of facts and law around whether we're giving these licenses too freely, whether we're not looking into whether some of the people in receiving these licenses are committing fraud. Yes. Like I think there's a difference between like a a period or a comma different and, uh, you know, in the wrong place versus, you know, people testifying under oath that they're deliberately funneling healthy people into these programs uh, in order to make money. And that's obviously something I know this listener and I know we want to get to the bottom of. And there's also just like startling data about the industry from 2012 to 2016. Health inspectors cited 87 percent of hospices for deficiencies. Now, those could be the periods, the commas off, et cetera. And as I noted, when I put that data out before, my mom works in nursing homes. And when they get inspected, she always would tell me about like getting dinged for this or dinged for that. And that's wrong. But 20 percent of them had lapses that the HHS deemed serious enough to endanger patients. Now, it's possible that they're being too alarmist about what those deficiencies are. But that does seem like pretty startling data, especially when you combine it with like all the stuff that ProPublica did on Earth. And like, even if they're blowing up out of proportion Arizona and LA and certain markets, those are still major problems that need to be solved for. Like, even if like in Idaho, for example, things are much better, which it sounds like it, uh, that doesn't mean that there's major, major issues happening in Arizona and LA. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't know, Kirk's point's well taken, though. I think if we, you know, you hear a lot of commentary about here are a couple examples of some awful charter schools or people taking taxpayer dollars to do ridiculous things or they're shuttering their doors. Like, it is true that um, I think we might have steel man that a little bit better than we did in this case. There are certainly, um, I'm sure, plenty of providers of hospice care who genuinely are serving in need of people who would be much more comfortable living out their final days um, more peacefully than in an, an intensive care unit. And so I think it's, it's a point well taken. Um, reminds me of watching John Oliver's segment on uh, charter schools and being like, oh, but there's this is not an yeah. illustrative um, overview. So I, it's a point well taken, I think. But there is a key difference, and I would be interested, this, this listener could send a follow-up voicemail. When we talk about charters across lost debate, by and large, the people who talk about it, and this is not a rule, anybody can have any opinion, they support nonprofit, well-regulated charter schools. And when they talk about fraud and abuse in charter schools, we join the chorus of people yeah, who call absolutely. on states like Ohio, Michigan, Florida, to, to better regulate those schools. And in, for certain you know, of us in the reform community, we don't think that those for-profit charters should exist because the, because the incentives are so bad for fraud and abuse. And so it's quite the opposite in that case. Like I think like it's incumbent upon us in the industry to actually hold our own people accountable. And I think that's why it's really important for people like this listener to be like, all right, like it's not a question of good or bad industry. It's like, are there certain incentives in certain pockets of the industry that are leading to really bad things happening. That's true of charter schools and that's true of hospice care. 
And to be clear, I don't think we should get rid of either of them. I just think that in certain places, we need way better laws and oversight of these institutions, especially when we have for-profit institutions involved. The nonprofits uh, and you know, well-regulated, well-functioning for-profit institutions, I'm fine with that in either case, but it's just too rare. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for sending in messages. Uh, Thank you to David for joining us today. And we'll be back on Thursday. Same place, same time. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. 